It's round four, 2020, and there is still no football. So this week on The People's Game, we've got a special edition of The Rewatchables, looking back at round four, 1993, when St Kilda clashed with Collingwood at Victoria Park. Nick Place wrote about Nicky Winmar's famous post-game stand against racial, racial vilification for the following day's edition of The Sunday Age, and he joins us to relive that moment. In The Unwatchables, we're looking not at one match, but at an entire season. In 1916, the VFL continued despite the ongoing war effort. That chat ties nicely into Book Club this week, where we're looking at the importance of sport in times of crisis and some of the columns put out on the topic in the past week. My co-pilot, as ever, is Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Gordon, hello. How you doing, JB? Our unwatchable segment this week is built not on a round, but on an entire season. The VFL competition had continued without change in 1914 and 1915, but by 1916, Australian men had been slaughtered en masse at Gallipoli, and lengthy campaigns in the Middle East and Europe were underway. With Australia yet to hold a national vote on conscription, the army was struggling for recruits. That led the age to run a campaign against the league continuing, on the basis that fit and able men should be enlisting in the war effort rather than playing footy. The paper also ran several letters to the editor to amplify the point. It wasn't a view shared by all comers. Free Kick, an opinion columnist for the sporting judge, took aim at the campaign against football, questioning whether the editorials really reflected public opinion. The VFA and the South Australian Football League both cancelled their seasons, and in the VFL, Essendon refused to play unless the competition was amateur. That request was denied and the Dons eventually pulled out on patriotic grounds alongside Geelong, Melbourne, South Melbourne and St Kilda. That left the four working-class inner-city clubs, Richmond, Carlton, Collingwood and Fitzroy, to play each other four times across 12 rounds, with all four making the finals. So, Gordon, my opening question to you is, should footy have gone ahead in 1916? That is a tough question to answer, even in hindsight. My gut feel is for those four clubs, yes. My rationale behind that is you said they were the inner city working clubs, working class clubs. And so conscription didn't go through. You're not being forced to go fight overseas. This is a war that's happening on the other side of the world in a time where it's really kind of hard to actually work out what's going on in the other side of the world. But the economic impact is coming down into your inner city suburbs of Melbourne. So there are people not having the greatest time in these suburbs. And so if you can continue some normalcy, bring some joy, create some purpose, have footy, it feels like that was the right call to make. Because it's safe. It's not like it's dangerous. It's not like it's a war zone. It's just during a war time. And so really the argument there, yeah, that argument being why you are fighting, well, my return argument if I was a football player of the 1916 would be why, why do I have to go fight? It's not my fight to fight. It would be my personal uh, opinion. But yes, long story short, I'd say good call on playing footy. Uh, does raise some interesting uh, tidbits, talking points and potentially some asterisks given a four-team season, everyone makes finals, but goes down in the history books. Obviously, they couldn't predict that, that we were going to last for 150 years, but it did, and it's raised some interesting points. So. It's interesting to look back in retrospect. So the, the interesting thing, doing a little bit of research about why 1916 was kind of the year where this became a conversation, 
is interesting in itself. So the war starts mid-1914, at which point we've still got 10 teams. 1915 goes ahead pretty much as normal, uninterrupted. By 1916, the feeling that I... So there's two things that are happening. Australia is trying to organise and have a national vote on conscription, and they're doing that because they're struggling for recruits. So it seems very much like what happened was there's now this concerted effort to stop football because it will mean that more people recruit. And so that's actually, for me, where the core issue kind of lay and what kind of brought this to a head was them not actually being able to push through conscription. They had two plebiscites in World War One. The first one was in October 1916, and they weren't able to force through legislation to that effect at any point. And it's really interesting that it actually picks up again in 1917, we'll get to kind of what happened post 16, but teams started to come back into the competition relatively quickly. There wasn't actually a huge shutdown of the game in any sense during World War One. I, I find it quite interesting that, yeah, as you said, that this was the year that Melbourne public opinions was tried, tried to be swayed into, uh, yeah, we should all conscribe and go fight the good fight elsewhere. So it does seem odd it only lasted for about 12 months. And I suppose, as we said, it's a different media climate. So word coming back from the front lines takes a bit of time to get to Melbourne in those days. And so that probably makes sense for the delay. But I don't quite understand why newspapers were campaigning so hard other than probably they have the ear of political political parties and political members that want people to conscribe. So, mm. And this this caused a schism... Ultimately, it led to the um, the splitting of the Labor Party and it led to Billy Hughes ceasing to be Prime Minister when that happened because of how controversial it was just at a parli- parliamentary level. So kind of looking at what's happened, that seems to be the sticking point. And that's an issue that was controversial right up to the Vietnam War when there was conscription and there was huge campaigns to to kind of change that legislation back the other way. So there's never, it's a really hard issue to say that the, the public is of one mind mm. on conscription because I, I think at various points in history, they've been split in so many different different directions. Um, so that seems to be the case. So it's, there's some really interesting stories that came out of the players that did play in 1916. Um, they were at different stages of abuse. Some of them were sent things like white feathers in the mail. So there was kind of this this section of the public that was very of the view that they shouldn't have been playing and that they were doing something cowardly by playing. Which I don't quite understand. From your research, was there anything, were there any arguments that the clubs made that they were doing like a public good? So I suppose to, to jump forward a little bit, at the moment, that's the argument that a lot of sports leagues are doing, other than obviously it's a now fully professional organisation that has a lot of money to be made for employees, players, media, et cetera, et cetera. But at the moment, the underlying goodwill notion is that we should be playing sport during Corona times because it provides happiness and a relief and an escape to the masses. Mm. Was there any argument from the four clubs about that? That's what they were doing, that they were providing an escape or a sense of normalcy to the working class in those four suburbs? So there was, so there was a couple of things that played into this. So the first one was that Essendon asked for the competition to be made amateur. And there was a feeling that if it was a competition that was played without it necessarily being a money-making vehicle, more clubs would have been happy to stay in it. And when 
Geelong come back in in 1917, they do so as, as an amateur club. So their players aren't paid. Um, the four clubs that stayed in promised to commit large amounts of their funds raised to patriotic funds, so essentially just war funds. But what ended up happening in 1916 was that they essentially doctored the figures. So they didn't actually fulfil the charitable purpose that they set out. So they claimed a really large and high number of expenses. Um, the loophole that allowed them to do that was essentially closed before the 1917 season so that they actually did have to donate a greater slice of the profits to the war fund, basically. So there was meant to be, but then they kind of shirked it. Was there any explicit explanation on their motivations as clubs as the actual administrators to keep on playing? No, I don't. And it wasn't like it was a massive moneymaker at that time. It was still very much the infancy of the VFL. Yeah, exactly. It's the game is professional. So they're mainly making money off the gate. But even the clubs that stayed in, the gate was so greatly reduced because of the the kind of economic climate anyway that it became more difficult to raise money anyway. Um, so I, I don't know. The kind of commonly accepted explanation for the four clubs that stayed in staying in is that they were those working class clubs. So it's quite notable in the kind of the timeline of how everything unfolds that Melbourne is the last club to rejoin the competition. They don't rejoin until 1919. Um, so they're the club that had the longest exodus from the competition. And I think it's probably fair to say that they're probably the most white collar of the clubs. Hmm. So I also find a bit interesting as well, because I would have thought there'd be enough backers at the more white collar clubs to keep them afloat at these times. So, and are people like are people from white collar families more likely to go off and fight overseas? Is that how it kind of worked? Are we still in 1916 attached to that sense of the monarchy and those kind of ties? Like are the higher classes more likely to go off and serve their country than the working class? Mm. Mm. It's a it, complex on a few levels, but they ended up with a four team competition which essentially and we've spoken about this before led to probably the ultimate asterisk which they love to throw around in the media now the ultimate asterisk flag so Fitzroy started the season with two wins and a draw they lost to the Blues by 33 points at Brunswick Street Oval in round four which began a nine-game losing streak that took them through to the end of the home and away season but they make finals because they finish fourth in a four-team competition um and then they go on to win the flag. It's really interesting. So we spoke in, earlier in an episode a couple of weeks ago about the final system. So in this final system, one played three and then two played four in the first week of finals, which led to the Roys beating second-place Collingwood by six points. They then beat first-placed Carlton by 23 points in the final, and then they beat the Blues again by 29 points in the Challenge Grand Final. So kind of came home like the wind. Um, Fitzroy had underperformed. So they were like a powerhouse, a pre-war powerhouse in the middle of the decade, lost a couple of stars to the war effort, tackled this year with a first-year player coach, George Holden, and a first-year captain, Wally Johnson, um, and obviously go on to kind of win this flag. It's also the first year that Richmond ever made the VFL finals, which is a bit of a quirk of history. I don't even know whether you could call them finals really that's probably my next question for you well 
if you don't call it finals and you don't call it a flag, then you, then you don't call it a season. But it was a season they did play. It does count. It is continuous league, if it is, even if it is reduced. That's why I kind of get a bit angry about the asterisks in all sports at the moment. It's like, well, that's the world, for better or for worse, sport doesn't happen in a vacuum as much as people seem to think it does. It is a subset of existence and then existence happens to it and with it. So the war happened. They only had four teams. They played. They had to have finals because that's what they want. They want a final system. Fitzroy won. Like an asterisk season, I don't think so. They still they still managed to beat the top two teams three weeks in a row. So like you win. Well, I th- I just think the interesting thing is in that twelve season twelve round season they played each other home and away twice. So they played everyone four times. Hmm. So. If you want, I understand that the tradition was to have a final series, but surely you would just do away with that because the fairest result would be that you've already tested who's the best team to enough of an extent to establish that as a fact. But they, they already, they've, already, they've already done that in other seasons too and they still play finals. We do it every year and we still play finals. It just seems to be that finals are part of what we do. So just because you play everyone twice and now you have a final system, it's just, it's just the way... Australian rules football was played and they already had those checks and balances in the post season anyway by having the channel having the challenge game having the grand final if you want to lose back-to-back weeks against the worst team in the comp that year then you probably don't deserve to win the premiership anyway it's a very very good point so the interesting thing about this is the Argus's report on the grand final kind of noted the kind of historical quirk that this was and Fitzroy had been crap. And I guess they probably didn't know that people would be sitting here 104 years later discussing it on a podcast about coronavirus. But anyway, play on. Um, Basically said that the league final system always has an element of uncertainty as to whether the deserving side will actually win, which I actually thought is a fairly good summation of how Every season the VFL AFL has, has always worked because we've yeah. never had a fair final system. When was the last time the actual best team in the competition won the flag? And the problem is best team is subjective. But like, like some years there's an actual consensus best team. When was the last time that team won the flag? More often than not, the team that absolutely dominated the home and away season doesn't win the premiership. I mean, it's a, I think that is the way that the system... The system's geared to performance on individual days being heavily weighted, even more so now where you don't have the challenge final. So even in these early days, you could almost make an argument that winning the prime, minor premiership actually meant something because you had the right of challenge, mm. which you don't have anymore. Uh, but then so, my, my, my only point to kind of take away from that is that I don't think the minor premier is an accurate reflection because the home and away season's not. It's a very long way from an even draw. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. But I was so, still, so, I would, after doing three unwatchables, I'm all about the challenge system now. Give the minor premier a reason to go for the minor premiership. You would see a very different regular season if you knew that if you finished on top of the ladder at the end of the year, you got to challenge the grand finalist, no matter what happened to your finals campaign. So here's the interesting thing. The AFL at the moment is looking for 
ways to add extra games or add back extra finals or whether we should do a best, best of three. The most of, so say, so coronavirus, say we squeeze 17 games in. Yeah, so that's actually, the once. that's the actually perfect, an even draw. The perfect draw, it's yeah. actually even. So then you have a minor premier who can still play finals, but they have the opportunity to then play the the grand final the against grand the final. team that yeah. the actual grand grand final. Mm-hmm. I think we have to add another grand. The grandest um, of finals. Yeah, play the minor premier against the finals premier. Um, and I don't think this will happen, but it's a much better option than a best of three grand final because it would actually force teams to value. Because the real the the, th- the truth is the modus operandi in most professional sports that now have a final system. It's the same in Major League Baseball. It's the same throughout the world. It's we make the playoffs and then anything can happen. Mm. In the AFL, it's probably we make the top four and then anything can happen. So the challenge system, in terms of things that have actually aged well from like the very early days of the VFL, I think is one that I actually look at. Like, That's actually pretty good. Mm. Especially in a sport where you can't play a series. So it's not like American sports, like basketball or baseball, where you can play three, five, seven game final series because just the nature of football makes that impossible to schedule. So the only thing you can do is kind of give the the double chance, an actual double chance to the top place team. I really like that as a concept. Back in the day, they were onto something, I think. I think it's particularly tasty when the minor premier stumbles and doesn't get to the grand final. I'd be kind of curious as to, because really it's, I think that it could be used to guard against the preliminary final loss as opposed to the grand final loss, just repeating the grand final. Cause then mm. you just go, well, we just got a best of two grand final, but the second one is more important. You're pl- only playing the first one for the right to play the second one. Well, not really. Know. Cause then you know that, you know that if you're, if you're tailing out as the as the minor premier, then you want to win that first one to make sure you win the flag. So, well, the truth is, if you don't minor premiership and you end up playing them in the grand final, you have to beat them twice. Mm. That's the the dogs would have had to have done the miracle against Sydney twice over. Yes, and they wouldn't um, have, and they would have shown why they didn't deserve to win it in the first place. It would have been great. I'd love to know how. I can't believe I can't vibe that current players would be on for this. Like, could you imagine West Coast after the 2018 Grand Final, then having to go back and play Richmond? Like, is it asking too much, or does the Grand Final then just become another final? I think it just becomes another final. If it's what we always did, players would be on board with it. Mm. That's the part. Like, are players on board with always playing the Grand Final at the MCG? Well, they are because that's what we've always done. And it becomes this annoying little like roll out the red carpet journalism trope to, to bring up. I was like, oh, we should play it at wherever. But players don't actually care. They just care about making the grand final. So if the challenge game was always the challenge game, then they just know. We finished. We didn't finish top. We won that first final. We go play them again. I kind of like the idea of Richmond bottling it at a prelim final to give themselves a week off to then play West Coast and win. That's it's kind of good. You could just lose a game. The, the thing is then, like, would you even try and win that prelim? Would you just let Collingwood and West Coast tear each other to shreds so you could play them in a challenge game? But see, Could it, it introduce tanking? It could, but would you risk it? So you're playing in a, in a, in a yeah, you're playing in a prelim. You're going to have to play in a prelim. Oh, no, not even, you can go out in straight sets. So you finish top, you go out in straight sets and you have two weeks off. 
Are you going to play good footy after not playing any footy for two weeks versus a team that's having a red-hot form in the finals? I don't think so. I suspect the record would say that would not favour you, but I imagine if you started just throwing that around, everybody, oh, my God, that's not fair, too much rest. But we've seen as soon as you... Like, there are heaps of teams that lose their prelim because they had the week off by winning the first week, so... Allegedly. Allegedly. So Unless you're Geelong, in which case, any buy anywhere in the season is a mm. terrible thing which is one of the amusing historical quirks. Um, so the spectator count at both of the 16 and 17 grand finals was really quite low. So it was 21,000 and 25,000 in those two years, respectively. So what does that tell us, if anything, about the public appetite for sport in times of crisis? I think there's a difference between public appetite and public ability to attend. And so Ironically, we're seeing this again. It's like if, if football comes back this season, there won't be any fans in the stands. Does that matter? Probably not. Especially now that we have television, radio, all of it, you can consume it however, however you want. Well, I think what would be more interesting was how many people are attending the games during the season as opposed to how many people are attending the games during the grand final. Because potentially this season did become an asterisk season once everyone plays out it twice and suddenly Fitzroy goes on this roll and then steals the flag. I could see why that would annoy some people. And also it's only four teams. I can see why it would have a diminished effect on, on attendance and the spectacle of it. But I don't think, you know, 20-odd 20, 20 thousand people is a fairly large number of people, especially if the only people who are following that season are teams, like followers of those teams. It wasn't like, it wasn't imagine... like everyone went there yeah. who had committed to the whole season and invested in the whole season. There was only four teams. So really the VFL became the inner, inner North Melbourne Football League for one season. It would be better if it was just that now. Just Carlton, Richmond, Collingwood, Fitzroy. That's it. I don't have to travel outside my little bubble. But you're probably right, because I think if you look at Melbourne, geographically in these days, I imagine people would have been travelling around. It would have been a lot harder to get from Essendon to Punt Road. Hmm. I guess they still have trains, but in terms of being cost-effective, et cetera, the incentive was really to go support your local team in much the same way as I might swing down to Coburg and watch the Lions now. It's, it's very much a can-you-get-there-on-foot sort of a vibe in those days as opposed to I'm going to get the train to the MCG. Um, you know, I'm going to sit on the wing, I'm going to eat a pie, I'm going to have had pies, so on. Anyway, so very, very different and very, very hard to kind of gauge. I alluded to this before, so from kind of the, the asterisk moment in 16, Geelong and South Melbourne come back in 17, Essendon and St Kilda come back in 1918, and then by 1919, we're back to the full contingent of 19. So obviously university fell away at the end of 1914, um, pre-war. So... Like, kind of reading this and having read all the literature, if you just told me that World War One happened and we only we didn't lose any footy seasons, we only really lost 1916, where we had more than half the comp out, um, and we didn't really lose it all together, I think I would be surprised if I was just a sort of an average Joe who didn't spend time on AFL tables. Yeah, you would. It is quite interesting that that was the case. But again, I suppose that just kind of reiterates how separate Australia was from the world in that time. Like it was very much a case of fighting someone else's war, which is why we have all these awkward, complicated emotions around 
Gallipoli at the moment as a younger and removed generations looking back at that history a hundred plus years on and being like, does any of this really make any sense? Especially when we are told or taught that it hangs up a huge sense of our identity as a nation and as Australians. And you're like, well, does, does it anymore? Is that right? If it does, does that make sense? Should that be fostering? That kind of thing. So, yeah. It's an interesting little deep dive for sure. And so talking about that leads into what we were going to talk about on Book Club, which is obviously the current crisis, which is, I guess, in terms of the economic ramifications is compared to wartime. It's clearly not at anywhere near the level of casualties certainly here as we experienced during world war one so there were two different columns in the guardian this week not quite conflicting but close to it so jeff lemon wrote about footy not being as important as we thought it was and essentially wrote that the game will be fine um using footy to kind of mean the nrl and the afl kind of reflected quite poignantly at length about all the things he is worried about so people in india who don't have the capacity to be tested there's a whole kind of beautiful list in the article of things that are unsporting related that are, in his opinion, more important. Um, Jonathan Howcroft wrote kind of on a different angle about all the sporting moments we're missing out on. So sporting FOMO. So it's kind of two questions or a few questions that this raises. So does sport matter? Do you, so Jeff kind of writes in the article that he's not thinking about it, but like a we as a population or as a people or even just us individually actually thinking about sport and its future right now i get really conflicted emotions when it comes to this so i've always said i've said this podcast a couple of times that sport is the most important unimportant thing in our lives especially as melbourneians and then since it's been taken away and since that regularity has been taken away i think it actually does prove its importance and i actually got really annoyed reading this jeff lemon piece because it's it strikes me as like if you're not globally and outwardly thinking as, a, as an individual or as the leader of a family unit or as a, a leader of a community group or as a leader of, and he does go on to kind of say that actually community groups and cl- local clubs are really important. But to, to say that those, those emotions and those, that sadness of having something taken away from you is unvalidated because you were lucky enough to be born in this country and don't have to suffer the plight of other countries. Well, then you're going to be having this weird, complex regret over circumstance for the rest of your life because if this if that's the case now that you know you know we can't count the number of cases in india because half the population isn't actually registered on a census or we can't trust figures in these other countries or we can't trust people losing their jobs or whatever well that doesn't if it's not happening to you then like in a time like this it doesn't actually affect you just because we now live in a global world where all this information is, is readily accessible doesn't mean that it's actually extremely pertinent or extremely relevant to the individual, which is why I think sport is important to a country, to a city like Melbourne. That's what makes Melbourne great. And by extension, by saying that sport doesn't matter, then what else doesn't matter? We're saying that arts doesn't matter. We're saying that we shouldn't actually help the restaurant industry. So I was similar. I had some really conflicting kind of a view or views reading this because I agreed with parts of it and generally think of 
myself as quite like out, outward thinking, quite aware of what's happening. But the thing that's been really acutely noticeable for me in this crisis is how what you kind of choose to prioritize and kind of where you choose to focus your attention. And I think in the past month, I've focused a lot of attention on kind of protecting or making sure my own inner circle and network of people. So like family, close friends, et cetera, has kind of got itself secure, which, and and kind of how that that ties into sport, because I think the thing that's interesting in all of this is how, I don't miss actually people kicking a football. The difference is the social fabric that that has kind of disrupted. So it's disrupted all the kind of normal rhythms of what you do and when you choose to see your friends, how you see them, et cetera. And, and so I, it's not that I think that thinking about sport and talking about what's going to happen with Aussie rules is necessarily really about what actually happens on the field. I'm not really that concerned with who kicks what goal when. I'm more concerned about, A, the employment workforce that relies on sport as an industry, which is now, as you say, non-essential, and then, B, like the the amount of people that that's disrupted a social fabric for. Yeah, and I think part of this is less to do with the AFL and the other professional sporting leagues, the NRL, the A-League, the whatever, and more to do with the actual sport. And I think Jeff Lemon in his piece kind of alludes to that fact saying, well, you know, you know, footy will always exist. It doesn't matter in what extent it always exists. But this this is a sport. The VFL, AFL is a league that played through the wars. This will be the, if it doesn't play this year, it'll be the first time in its history that it doesn't go ahead. Now in the modern field, the AFL is what funds these local communities a lot of the time. This is where you get your grants to have a club. This is where the club has to rely on grants and shires and stuff to have a field to have change rooms to help out with volunteers to keep things afloat and so if you don't have that top tier and yes there's always the argument about does that money ever reach to grassroots the short answer is yes it does to some extent then you don't have that flow and effect but also it's an aspirational notion when you see footy on television kids want to go out and kick footy they want to go out and do oz kick they want to go out that's how you learn. You learn from that exposure. So if you lose that for one season, two seasons, three seasons, there does become a stop and people will be like, oh, I don't actually miss it that much or there's other things to do or, or whatever. But you are missing, it makes up so many elements of, especially to go hyper-local, Melbourne and life, going to watch the footy at the MCG, going to watch the VFL, going to watch local footy, playing local footy, hearing about it in, in, on the radio, reading about it in the newspaper. It's just part of life. So when, you, when you're missing that, you have this void that kind of reminds you every day that life is not normal right now. Then you go on to have the, probably the ex- extrapolating loop of, and also I've just lost my job. And also I have to try and work how to teach my kids from home because they can't go to school. So on and so forth. Also, I have elderly elderly parents. Also, I have elderly friends who are at risk. It, it compounds and there's no escape. Whereas a lot of the time, footy is the one thing that people that a lot of people have. But you can send it out to other unessential things like the arts, like music, etc. That that's their escape. I have been given this lot in life, but I can go to that gig. I've been given this lot in life, but I get to see a movie every Friday afternoon. 
and they get by by that. They get by by their one thing. But even when their one thing is taken away, well, then what do you do? That's the part which I think the AFL gets no credit for, is that for a lot of people, especially in Melbourne, that's the one thing that gets them through a winter is footy. So I kind of thought about this a lot. And I understand or understood why footy needed to stop when it stopped. Hmm. But I also think that with this, so all of the things that that organisation does, so the amount of people that work in it, the amount of local footy organisations, like it is the ecosystem now. Now that's a design flaw, an enormous one. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. So my kind of opinion on this is really the sooner it gets back, and we can find a way to get players playing and get it on TV and do that safely, the better it is for a lot of people, purely for the people who work in that space, for media, et cetera. And I, don't, I think that the only thing is I feel like I, I'm frustrated when people, we shouldn't make special exceptions for sport. We should do that for any industry that we can get up via a tele... Like, so we can create a world where musicians can play gigs online and people pay $30 to go to the live gig and watch it through their computer. We should do that just in the same way as football can make money from television rights. Like anywhere where there is an opportunity to actually get something going that keeps people job in their jobs or gives them their jobs. I think we should be doing, I don't think we should be necessarily, and I'm not saying Jeff is doing this. I don't, I don't think we should sit there forever and look at it and go, oh, no, but there are more important things than this right now. Because at the end of the day, like, when you actually take sport and music and the arts, they are, I don't want to say they're luxuries, but they are, for, for, for a public that consumes them, they are our entertainment, but they are also livelihood for the people that work in them. And so I think that they are really important because the other thing is, like, life when, without all of those kind of things to indulge, is pretty boring, to be honest. It's beyond that. It's beyond that, though. It discredits what those things do. Mm. They are all storytellers. So when you go, they are storytellers and they're story makers. So sports people, when you go to the MCG on a big on a big day or any day really, when you go to, when you go to the MCG on any day, you leave knowing that there is a there, you've witnessed stories that are usually beyond, especially if you go in person that are usually beyond just who kicked what goal and whatever. And that's what we've been doing. We've been doing rewatchables and unwatchables and finding the stories from those things and going, they are almost parables for the, for the spectators. That you leave that having felt something. You leave a gig having heard another perspective. I think the interesting thing is the way that so many sporting... And I, there is, and I think this is a really important point for reflection on what sporting bodies have done in the past 15 years. And I, I do think that... The, the, the brutal reality after this crisis is that there won't be a sport that is set up in the same manner. There's a lot more money that will be consistently invested in futures funds by all of these leagues when they're in a position to do that because of just having something hit you for sticks like this means that you, you will absolutely... It's even like... And that, that goes beyond just big corporations' finances and the AFL's finances. Like, people are going to be looking at their personal finances in two years' time and setting them up a hell of a lot differently to how they were setting them up a year ago. Like, I've asked questions about investment options that I have not even thought about prior to this crisis. So how this will reshape all of that thinking is not even possible to measure. Um, 
I guess you've kind of started touching on this a little bit. So I'm not, I'm not sure from a logistical point of view, I get the AFL coming back, but from, isn't the problem with getting ammos off the ground other than money purely about when we're allowed gatherings of a certain number of people? So, like, surely it's more feasible to play a game at Brunswick Street Oval in front of 20 people than it is to try and play an AFL game in front of a crowd right now. Yeah, I think the difference being is that if you don't involve a crowd in the AFL, then you can control the exposure of the participants. So that's the whole joke about AFL Island or something like that is that NRL Island and AFL hubs and yeah, all that kind of stuff. And so it just be all the players on the list, every single coach involved, all the umpires go and live together basically in quarantine for the season. So do you hate that idea? I don't hate it. And if you don't want to do it, then don't play. Like that's the point. And if, if enough, if enough players say no, well then they don't play and the season doesn't go ahead. And I get that, but I mean, this is the thing. Like if the players agree to it, Hmm. I understand the concept of an island sounds like a ridiculous reality TV show, but if you can get footy on TVs, it creates or starts the wheels of the whole industry rolling that otherwise wouldn't be. Hmm. And I just don't see how that's a bad thing. The only part of it's a bad thing is probably twofold. One's like logistically, like does it actually work? Is it actually safe? Does that, will it actually prevent the spread of a virus? from, from yeah, affecting either the participants and putting them at risk or the risk of further spread. And then two is more of like a PR type, how does it look measure for these leagues? If everyone else is in shutdown, is it actually okay for a league to go ahead? That's probably the part that the AFL has to kind of, and all these other sporting associations have to keep in mind is that, is it going to be actually okay if we go on with this whilst everyone else is in lockdown still. So we spoke, uh, we spoke about like public mood in relation to wartime enlistment. So measuring like public mood is really quite hard. So I got the feeling that the AFL, by the end of the round they'd played, basically decided that the public mood had, mood had moved past them being out of play because they couldn't adhere to social distancing properly. They were clearly flouting all those rules. So at what point can the AFL actually definitively look at all of that evidence and go, this is actually morally not putting ourselves in a privileged position right now to do this? Well, I don't think they can't. I don't think they can. I think they're stuck in the same thing as the wartime thing. So like, is it public opinion? Is it the loudest minorities? Is it invested media agencies? Is it... And that's the kind of thing you see happening at the moment with the NRL is this byplay between Channel 9, who now doesn't want the season to go ahead because if it doesn't, then they don't have to pay their they don't have to pay their fees. Versus the NRL saying, well, no, we're doing this for the for the goodwill of the people. And then the New South Wales Premier coming out and uh, Deputy Premier coming out and saying, actually, NRL is the tonic that our state needs because that's the fabric of our state. So there's two, there's, when you say public opinion, 
there's too many people at play at the moment that have too much sway on what public opinion actually is to actually get a proper gauge of it other than running an AFL referendum saying, should we go back or not? So at the end of the day, it's like probably they're going to have to make a business decision, unfortunately, and then ask their participants, are you willing to play? And then check to make sure that they have the leeway to say, is it safe? But if yeah. you have I mean, that, they're, they're, they're safe the- and, people have, and people give their consent, then that's what it is. And if you don't agree with it, don't watch. Yeah, it is interesting. So just even the fact that the age so far back was campaigning against the league continuing because the kind of, I think the footy media now are very hot on discussing ways that we can get a competition off the ground. And that part of that has to be that the vested interest now from the media is not in footy stopping, but footy starting because of the amount of money it makes, which is a factor that wasn't there in 1916. So cut this back. I'm going to cut this back a little to FOMO, which is the kind of the topic of the Howcroft column. So 2020 in terms of sporting achievements is pretty much going to be a desert. So other than kind of the women's world T20 final, I don't think there'll be, or there's a reasonable chance there won't be a big sporting moment. And that's kind of what Howcroft kind of pushes at in his column. So is there a feeling of missing out or if we just get all of our sporting events, all our ducks in a line and 2021 is kind of a normal sporting year just with everything that was meant to happen this year pushed back, are we going to feel like there's this gaping void? Because to me, it's not just a gaping void in sport. I think when I look back at this kind of six-month block, there's just going to be, do you remember those six months where we sat inside? Like, so is it sporting FOMO or just FOMO? I think for us, because we're participating in it, it's just FOMO. It's just like we, we'd all like to get back to life. But I think just like when we look back at 1916 and go, oh, that's pretty weird. Or when, as we get out to go into and rewatch the Nicky Winmar game from 1993, we go, that's pretty weird that those events happened. Let's look into that a bit more. I think the version of us in the future looking back at, 20, at 2020, we'd be like, the whole world just stopped for a year? That's pretty weird. But it, we won't look the other like thing, that. We'll just go, we just, we just did it. We just stayed inside. So I, I was talking to Dad the Savo, and so there's going to be like this asterisk thing is going to live on. So like say we play like a 12-game season and then we play finals and then we just end up with a Premier and everyone's like, oh, you're not the real Premier. It's like I think what I've probably learned from discussing that is that if we get football in any capacity, a, the premiership probably doesn't matter as much as we think it matters when you look at everything that's happened. But B, even if we get like a kind of a pseudo lightning premiership where we have like a quick 10 round season and then we manage to play a final series and we end up with someone who has a cup, like we should be forced to just lump an asterisk on it because we didn't do it in the way that we've done it in the previous five years. Because the VFL has constantly had a myriad of different systems for deciding this that as recently as... 1992 which is blatantly stupid hmm. and we still have a premier and if you really wanted to go through and come up with all the potential asterisk premierships based on really bad final systems i reckon you could pick out 35 seasons hmm. absolutely and so i i guess i guess my point is if, well, if we get some sort of football we just get it and we should just take it and enjoy it for what it is rather than sitting there oh we got the wrong fucking premier and i think the vast majority would do that Again, 
It's just that we live in this hyper-mobilized world where if you have an opinion and you have a computer, you can be heard. And if there's enough of you saying the same thing, it turns into an article which gets sent out for clickbait and then blah, blah, blah. The proliferation of bad opinion goes out. But I think the vast majority of people is kind of like, we want some sense of normalcy back. For Melburnians especially, but for most of the, the southern, southern seaboard of Australia, that is football. For the eastern seaboard, that's rugby league. For some weirdos, that could be rugby mm. union. Who knows? But, but that is getting that back and be able to go, oh, yes, I'm still stuck in my house. I still don't have my job back. I'm still having to go through all the hoops and, and, and palaver of, of welfare. But I get to ring up my mate and say, geez, the bombers sucked on the weekend. How good was it to smash you guys? That can give a lot of people enough light and hope to get through however long this winter goes. Rocker in ruck, wins in the middle. Richardson left it behind, Brown didn't. High ball, Winmar, courage. Well done, Nicky Winmar. St Kilda started 1993 among the competition front, front runners with star Noonga player Nicky Winmar in Brownlow medal form. A two and one, they faced the daunting task of playing the unbeaten Magpies at Victoria Park in round four. The Saints had lost their past 12 games at the venue, but had cause for optimism this time around. They ended the Pies' 1992 season in an elimination final between third and sixth at Waverley Park, their first finals win in Yonks. The Pies only missed out on the top two and the double chance on percentage, so the loss left them especially salty. The Saints overcame the absence of star forward Tony Lockett through suspension and the loss of Robert Harvey to a quad injury in the second quarter to win by 22 points in front of 28,350 people. Five goals from another Indigenous superstar, Gilbert McAdam, and a standout performance from Nicky Winmar proved decisive. But the day is now remembered because of what happened after the final siren. The atmosphere on the day was poisonous and Winmar and McAdam were racially abused throughout the match. After the game, Wimmar pulled away from his teammates and walked towards the Collingwood cheer squad. He lifted up his jumper and pointed at his skin. Sunday Age photographer Wayne Lubby captured the moment. The image is now one of the most famous in Australian sport. In the Age's newsroom, journalist Nick Place wrote up the story, but it took a lot of haggling on his part and on Ludby's to get it a run. In the end, it made the front page. Nick Place joins us for today's episode via Zoom. Welcome, Nick. Hey guys, how are you? Not bad. Um, so I wanted to start off just by tapping into what you were doing on the 17th of April, 1993. So I think previously you've said that you were based in the newsroom at Age HQ while this game was going on. Yeah, I, was what the, uh, I was what the American media like to call the rewrite man on the city desk. Um, where basically we had a role which was it was called football editor, I think, technically, but that sounds a bit grander than what it was. Basically, you just had to have someone who kind of knew footy and knew stories and had a good news sense who actually would just sit in the newsroom and basically listen to the radio, um, talk to all the reporters who were out the ground. This is back in the days where you would have probably three or four games happening at once. Um, wasn't quite in the six games on the Saturday time, but you, you certainly had a few games happening on a Saturday afternoon which was the Sunday age of the catchment area for what it was going to run the next morning. Um, so my job was to, well, on that day, was basically just to be monitoring everything. And then I would be the one who would go to the editor, who was Bruce Guthrie on the day, or the, the sports editor and also the 
sort of people, the chief of staff, the people in, in charge of putting the paper together. And I would say, in my opinion, these are the stories that we're really going to be going hard on out of the football. Uh, you know, it might usually would be something like someone's kicked eight goals or someone there's been a good comeback, you know, here. or It's just normally it would be or there's an injury. Um, I think that the secondary story on the day of what we're talking about was that Jim Steins had hurt himself and his consecutive run of games looked like it might not kind of keep going. You know, normally that would be quite a good story because Steins had an amazing run going, um, just got slightly superseded. But, yeah, so that was my role. It's, I mean, often I would be out covering games, but um, at this stage of that season, somehow I'd landed in that chair in the, in the office. Yeah, what was your expectation of this game leading into it? And what do you remember kind of hearing through the wireless? I was always pretty fond of St Kilda. I think like most people, if you don't barrack for St Kilda, you kind of like them. We've got some mates who barrack for St Kilda and they're always that kind of underdog and got those crazy characters. Um, so I've always had a soft spot for St Kilda. And, you know, St Kilda going to Victoria Park with some claims to break that consecutive run of outs certainly had my attention because it would rock if that could happen. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I think as a journalist, I was always very careful to be impartial and, and objective. I know it's, it's hackneyed stuff um, and everyone talks about it, but actually I took it really seriously. Um, I was very lucky that I'm a Richmond supporter and pretty much my entire career as a sports journalist, Richmond were absolute shit. So it was very easy to put the tiger hat aside and go, oh, I'll now concentrate on the game. Um, mates of mine who broke for clubs that were going well had a harder time in the press box, not sort of shifting in their seats when things were happening. Uh, but I was lucky Richmond never put me through that very much, so I was able to just be an objective journalist. So, you know, when I say that I was fond of St Kilda, I mean, I could see the good story in it. St Kilda, you know, getting on top of Collingwood at Victoria Park was definitely a good yarn. Um, such a Melbourne story, isn't it? No one in the rest of the world would care about St Kilda beating Collingwood at Victoria Park, but for people of football in Melbourne, that's a big yarn. Go St Kilda. So um, I think I had that kind of lens on probably. And also the story that you ran personally was a bit different to the actual just match report. And But if you're listening to this game from the newsroom at the age office, is any of that coming through the radio in terms of what was happening to St Kilda players on that day or how the crowd was behaving or what the atmosphere was like at Vic Park? No, actually, that's a really good point. Not really. Not, not more than... I mean, I think it took... Um, I think it took the booing of Adam Goods for that to actually make the telecast, if you know what I mean. Like, it, it took that level of, of crowd bastardry for it to actually get through the microphones and onto the telecast. So, no, not at all. I mean, and, and in fact, talking to journos who were there on the day, most of them had no idea what was going on, to be honest. They, they were watching the game. Collingwood crowds were always seething masses, as Windy Hill was, as probably Richmond fans were. You know, the big clubs... Um, I mean, God, St Kilda had the animal enclosure and was proud of this animal enclosure of meathead fans. And that was that was very much part of the fan culture back then. And, and Collingwood was a willing place to go. This isn't... I don't think this is too far removed from, you know, cold showers for the losers kind of stuff. Um, we forget, now that we're in such sanitised stadiums and it's all so professional, we kind of forget it wasn't that long ago that it was... It was pretty sporty going to places like that. Um, I mean, I can remember being at Princess Park and walking up the race. Well, what you did at Princess Park is you left the press box and went down through the crowd onto the ground, walked around the oval and then went up the race into the rooms. That was, for some reason, how you got into the rooms at Princess Park after a Carlton game. Uh, this is in the year of Diesel and all those guys. And I can remember walking up the race and seeing David Rhys-Jones smoking a cigarette, talking to the president, 
still steaming, literally steaming from the game and he's playing here and smoking a fag in the rooms. And, you know, it's funny that in my lifetime as a journo that those things can exist compared to what happens now. So, you know, in answer to your question, no, I don't think anyone knew. And I certainly didn't know. Um, I certainly didn't know sitting in the age office. I just knew that St Kilda were on top. The crowd was going nuts because St Kilda was on top. And St Kilda somehow pulled it off and actually won. I definitely would have known Gilbert McAdam had won, had kicked five goals and was starring. I probably knew that Winmar had played a good game just from listening to the commentary. And I'm also talking to the reporters. You know, again, this is kind of pre-mobile phones, really, or just on the cusp of mobile phones. So, you know, we had landlines into the press box, like the Herald or the Age or, the you know, the various papers had their landline. Um, so I would be talking to the reporters on that, just saying, you know, what's going on? What What's the big story from your point of view? Um, before they have to head to the rooms and then think about filing. So at this point in the, the then VFL, um, racial vilification between players is relatively common. So Dermot Brereton admitted, like in a column late in the 90s, to racially abusing Winmar and Chris Lewis. But in terms of crowds and that sort of stuff, how much discussion was there about racial discrimination in 1993? Was it even something that was on the radar? Um, I think from the the distance of time we're in, I think it was probably on the radar, but not taken particularly seriously as something that was going to change anytime soon. Um, I actually used to train at the Fitzroy Stars Aboriginal Youth Club Gymnasium <laughs> in uh, Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. So I kind of I kind of had a sense of it from there more than anything. Um, but in a way. You know, the Indigenous players almost seemed resigned to it. It was just like, that's what you copped. Just as just as anything was kind of fair game and it was just seen as a topic that was fair game. I don't think, I don't think people had really made the distinction between that and, I don't know, calling someone gay or calling someone whatever other insult you want to use on the day. It was, and I know that quite a few players who were basically found guilty of that or other you know, atrocious sledges. They were all a bit shocked that, but I was, it was just on the field. I didn't mean it. It was just sort of, it's just stuff you say on the field, which is the classic terrible defence, you know. <laughs> um, but I think that, I think that's why the Winmar thing has become so big because no one had mobilised. No one had actually done that. Hang on, I'm, I'm going to make a stand here. I mean... I think about Glenn James, the umpire. Can you imagine what that guy copped? Glenn James was an amazing freak of his time to umpire how many games he did as an Indigenous umpire. My God, you know, and what that guy must have copped and the way that he just he just sort of shook it off is incredible. But I think that the Indigenous players were supposed to shake it off. It was like you're supposed to show that you were so mentally tough that you'd just shake it off and you'd get on with it. Um, same as any other thing that was thrown at you on the field, white or black, you're supposed to shake it off and that was a sign of your toughness, which is terrible. I mean, I think now we can all look slightly more enlightened at and go, what the hell? Mm. But that's, that's the lesson in history, isn't it, that you actually look back and go, oh, my God, I'm embarrassed that happened. And this came, I think, Jake Nile wrote in 2018 that it was like a couple of months after Redfern, the Paul Keating Redfern address. So I... I I guess my, the reason I'm mentioning that is I don't know whether that played into a mood within society that there was a need for change in terms of how mainstream Australia treated Indigenous Australians or whether the Redfern speech was kind of preaching to a small 
minorities still. I don't know how those two things kind of interrelate. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's a, that's a very Jake line to take. And that's why I love Jake because he can draw those lines and sort of pull those parallels. Definitely the, definitely the Keating speech was a big one. And that it's interesting. I hadn't actually realized that was so close to what happened because that was a big speech and remains a big speech. Um, I think, I guess my take on it would be there was the enlightened few and there was a probably a growing uneasiness with what was going on, but I, I feel like it, that wave hadn't peaked and that's why I feel like this did catch everyone a little bit because in my hazy memory of it, we certainly weren't all down the pub talking about Indigenous rights and the fact that Indigenous people should be treated better. Like I said, at the Fitzroy Stars, it was a pretty hot topic of conversation, but... I would have thought out there in the hinterlands, it probably wasn't. And so if that's the case, then kind of how did this story come to be on the front page? If, if in general, the general zeitgeist at the time was that's just footy, you cop it and you move on. Hmm. Yeah, probably because it's, it's, you know, the guy standing in front of tanks at Tiananmen Square made the front pages as well. You know, sometimes someone does something that actually is so notable, it just has to be noticed. And I think that, you know, I endlessly admire Winmar for doing it. I'm sure he did it because he was pissed off. I'm sure he did it out of a place of anger and, like, you know, basically screwed a lot of you um, and a place of pride. I'm sure his motivation wasn't like going to make a stand for history here. But, you know, it... The, I don't know. I don't know if you guys know, but the way that I actually found out about it, you know, to answer your question is, um, you know, Wayne rang me and said, "I've got this photo. I've just seen this happen." Nicky Wimmer has walked over and basically stood in front of the crowd who have been giving him shit all day, and Wayne would know it because Wayne's on the fence and Wayne's hearing it all day. So Wayne's the one guy. The photographers are the ones who would hear it and would know. Um, no one ever really listens to the photographers because they're just doing their job, you know, but. Um, yeah, Wayne actually rang and said, I've got this photo and I think it's an amazing photo and basically here's what happened. He, he stood, he lifted his jumper, he pointed his skin, he said, I'm black and I'm proud. Um, to the crowd had been giving crap all day and, you know, the hair on my neck stood up. When I, and Wayne and I had known each other a long time. We actually, we knew each other even out of journalism. We went to the same school. He was a couple of years ahead of me at school but was in my sister's year. We'd surfed together for years. Um, I knew him sort of away from media. So... I knew Wayne as a bloke and I knew, I knew him as a person and not to say I wouldn't have taken that seriously from any photographer, but coming from Wayne, I was like, holy crap, if Wayne is saying it's a good photo, he's got my full attention. There's a few photographers who, you know, you really have to rate on their work, you know, him, Jack Attlee, there's a few of them. And basically I was like, if Wayne's saying this is a photo and if Wayne heard Winmar say that, I'm... A, not downing it, and B, I'm, I'm paying attention and see, holy shit, this is a story. So you get wind of it from Wayne and yeah. from what he's told me when we spoke about this a couple of years ago, there was then an awful lot of haggling to actually get this where it needed to be. And there was also huge time pressure to actually get it on the front page at all, purely because of the, the fact that he had to get from Victoria Park back to the ages office they had to actually go through the machinations or machinations of printing the photo or whatever and actually getting this on an editor's desk so what was the you've heard about it what then happens yeah that's a that's a fun lost part of the media is that you know these days you obviously can just send a photo basically like by your mobile phone and it's there in a fraction of a second but um yeah it was hilarious back then photographers had to 
had to scramble to get their stuff back. And, uh, you know, the, when I worked at the Herald in the, in the 80s, it was, a, it was a highlight of our year, Melbourne Cup Day, because the cup photo had to get back to get into the Herald sort of late edition because the Herald, you know, came out in the afternoon. And it was, it was like a thing of wonder to me as a young journalist. this thing. They actually literally had a dark room in the back of a truck that would be sort of developing the print to get it ready so that it could be raced in the door and basically thrown into the paper. It was, it was a marvel of non-technology, this whole thing. So, um, yeah, we were sort of still in those days where, yeah, Wayne had to get back. And it's not very far, you know, it's not very far from Victoria Park to where the age was on Spencer Street, but that's, that's a hack you know, through football traffic and all that stuff. So he had that going on. I've basically got his word for it. He's got this photo. Um, and, you know, I've got to go over to, yeah, the editor and the chief of staff and all the people who are huddled around sort of the page. And it is on the time pressure. I mean, again, I don't know how much you guys talk about that or know about that, but there's a country edition and there's a city edition. Like there's more than one edition of each paper each day. So the country edition is the one that often didn't have the footy scores because it had to get out to all the regional parts of Victoria and had to be printed early. So, you know, then you've got the city edition, which can have the kind of latest stuff. So um, there's a lot of that juggling going on and a lot of where are we at? Where's the actual front page at? Is it locked away yet? You know, um, Bruce Guthrie was a good editor, but he's, he's a very kind of, I don't know how to describe it really. He he was kind of from that Eric Beecher kind of soft journalism era, which sounds horrible. I don't mean it sound bad at all. He's a really good editor, like I said, and he's done some great work over the years. You know, he was kind of a guy who would have sort of lifestyle stuff on, and the Sunday Age was had had a weird mix of news and lifestyle, and it's a Sunday kind of reading newspaper. It's not necessarily a hidden between the eyes newsy newspaper. And Bruce was therefore the perfect editor for that vehicle. Um, and I'm, I'm turning up quite late in the piece going, I've got a photo, we've got a story, we want to break into whatever plans you've got for what's the best latte in Melbourne. We want to blow that off the front page at the last second and put this photo in because we think it's, you know, it's significant. I didn't get total pushback, by the way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good, good news people there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good journos on that floor and they they had the same antenna as me. So I did fight for it and I did have to get it because it was inconvenient to change the front page and could have gone on page three or could have gone on page five, really, you know? Is it really yeah. what we've got? So, you know, in a way, credit so, to that he did trust his people and in the end, yeah. I won the argument, you know? So so what role did the, the late, great Michael Gordon have in all of this? Because I believe he was in the newsroom at at one point or another and may have offered some assistance? I don't remember, actually, to be honest. Um, I remember, I think, a guy called Mark Fuller was there from memory. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember Mickey Gordon being part of it. I, I believe he uh, totally could have been and it would make sense that he was there. He would have been part of it. He would have, he would have got himself into that discussion. Um, but actually, yeah, I, I can't remember. I remember talking to Guthrie and I remember talking to Mark and I remember kind of, talking to the people in charge of those pages. Um, but yeah, I can't really remember the full cast of characters. It's a funny thing in newsroom like that, you do get a gaggle every now and then, everyone's busy and everyone's got a very defined role and there's a lot to get done in a short space of time. But it's funny how a gaggle can, uh, can occur when there's a debate to be had. Mm. So the other thing that Wayne told me that you might not remember is that he, I think at one point got told to go home. 
because his pursuit of getting this in the paper was so aggressive. <laughs> so he leaves and then kind of leaves this campaign in the end with you. Um, well, that yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that he was asked to leave um, knowing Wayne and knowing what he's like when he's got to be in his bonnet about something and this is important, that it actually makes total sense. He would have been, I, I've got a slightly more... Um, conciliatory, you know, I just really feel like this is important, we should talk about this. No, no, I'm not going away, but I, I'm, I'm not too in your face about this, whereas Wayne would have been totally like... <laughs> so, that, given your... I mean, again, it, a deadline's a tough thing. You know, there's a there's a legendary story from the truth of a, of a sub-editor actually having a heart attack and dying on deadline and then dragging him into a side room and finishing the paper before they kind of, you know, dealt with the fact this guy had killed over. Um, I don't know if that's an urban legend or if it's true, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was true because when you're on deadline on a paper, it's it's a pretty intense thing. So, you know, there are a lot of people are very intent. You don't want to be late. You can't be late. You don't want to have a hole in the paper. There's a whole bunch of things going on beyond is it a good news story. Mm. Um, so I think there were those battles going on. And, you know, Wayne's taking his photo. It's funny, when you're a photographer, you've got your photo, you believe in it, you just want everyone else to, to see what it is. You're very, very tunnel vision on that. Um, whereas again, for a guy like Guthrie, you know, it's, it's fair. He's got, I don't know what else was going on that day, but there would have been world news. There would have been this happening. There would have been that happening. There would have been the political reporter would have been in his ear about something. I mean, there's a lot of different voices coming and it's your job in a way to go, this is, this is what counts. This is going to land. We were just saying off uh, before the podcast, myself and, and JB, that it was actually kind of weird you go back and you kind of just search for these things being from the Google age of like, you type these things in and like not a lot comes up from the actual news source. Cause it was paper news. Like the newspaper was, was made, it was delivered, it was read and then it became wrapping or something. So did you kind of have a feeling that it would be an important news story for the next day, for the next week, for the next 25 years? What was your kind of gut on that? And how did that reflect what actually happened? I think my, I think my gut was that it wasn't just a like, I don't know. I can remember having a screaming front page once in a paper, which was um, gang stones none to death. <laughs> and that was one that I thought was a pretty big headline on the day that wouldn't really resonate much beyond that day. You know, um, I think that I thought the wind masking was pretty important. I thought that, like I said, the fact that someone had made a stand and the fact that he had actually turned to the crowd, no one really ever took on the crowd. No one ever really, you know, it's a pretty rare thing when you think about it, even in world sport. Um, I can remember Eric Cantona kind of charging in and trying to kick people in the crowd. That was landmark as well because, like, it never happened. So I think Winmar actually addressing the crowd in any capacity beyond just kind of, hey, I've kicked a goal, yeah, 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 as everyone has done for many years. I think to actually go and go, no, hang on, I'm black and I'm proud was a pretty big thing and I knew it would be a big thing. I certainly didn't think we'd be sitting here 25 or whatever years it is later still discussing it as this moment in time. But I think, I think that's the beauty of these things is that often when history happens, you don't really know that it's happening to the extent that it is. Um, you know, I've been to Nauru and it didn't occur to me that going to Nauru would be such an amazing thing. Now in the scheme of, you know, no one ever gets to go to Nauru or has an idea what Nauru is like. Um, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things like that. The whole street, the whole street kind of shootings was a big one. Um, I was on police rounds 
and had just gone home early that day when Russell Street headquarters blew up and I was aware that that was a pretty big thing and sometimes you do know you're kind of right in the moment. Um, and I think Winmar was a low-level version of that. I think I think I knew it was going to be important, but I didn't quite realise how important. Because, again, we're talking from hindsight, right? We didn't know Michael Long was going to happen. We didn't know Adam Goods was going to happen. We didn't know... You don't know the narrative that's going to go from there. And that moment kind of grew as the narrative increased. As, you know, it turns out the, the go square on the Monopoly board was a pretty big one. Like when you think about what Winmar did... Like he was blowing kisses to the crowd before and after this this gesture. So, as an act of courage, um, how did you do? You kind of have you kind of reflected on that aspect of it a little bit? Yeah, no, I have a lot because I think it was an incredibly courageous thing to do. I think you know, engaging with the crowd on their level in their language is one thing, and footballers have done that forever, and all sports people have done that forever. It's um, it's not a huge thing. Um, you know, it's not hard to go on YouTube and find people interacting with the crowd. But I think to I think to finally have a gutful of being, you know, told you're a black, whatever the hell the language was, and I'm sure it wasn't pretty. And to cop that for your whole career and to cop it hard. And like I said, Victoria Park was definitely a place you're gonna cop a lot of that. Um, and I'm not singling out Collingwood really, because like I said, I'm sure there was plenty of other grounds where it was just as bad. Um, yeah, I just think it was a whole different thing to actually go, I am black and I'm proud to be black and I'm going to stand up for all the black players and before and since, I think is actually a pretty amazing thing to do. Yeah, now, like I said, I'm not sure if Winmar had thought it through. I think it probably happened in the moment. But fuck, I'm glad he did it. And I'm sure a lot of people are glad he did it. And I'm sure he's glad he did it, even with the benefit of hindsight of going, what was I doing? But I'm glad I did it. Um, Michael Long, I suspect, would feel like that as well. Of, you know, I'm really glad that I took the stand that I took it. And it was terrifying. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And it's different to blind kisses. Blind kisses is just going, ah, screw you as well. That's a kind of banter in that. And what Wimar did with the jumper was not banter. That was like, fuck you, I'm going to tell this to you right now. It's a very different message and, a you know, very different intent. And I think that's what elevates it. And then was there much backlash from either the paper side or just in general from the clubs? Because I feel like that's one point that's different from today where if a player has any of that happen to them, the clubs are one of the first groups to come and support the players. Was that the same case in 93 or was it almost the opposite case? Yeah, it's a really interesting point, actually. It's, um, I actually can't remember St Kilda's reaction to it, which is fascinating that I can't remember it. That says a lot, I reckon, that it's, it's actually not clear to me. I remember Collingwood's reaction to it, and McAllister was a bit of a bumbling kind of out of his depth of all this. And again, you know, you look at McAllister through history, I mean, he kind of was a footy president who just wasn't really equipped for that situation and wasn't really, you know, oh, God, this is all a bit above and beyond my remit. I thought I just kind of, you know, gave out life memberships and tried to keep the books vaguely square and, you know, tell Peter McKenna he's a good bloke at lunch. And suddenly this whole thing erupts. You know, it's... I, I, have, mm. I have sympathy for him in that sense of, like, you know, he just wasn't equipped to deal with that situation. And he, he kind of was... He's turned into a time capsule of what kind of white administrators at that time were, <laughs> um, just as, you know, some of the, I guess, the white players who were doing this have turned into time capsules of what a football player was at that time. Um, yeah, so 
I think it's a really good point. The clubs, the clubs certainly weren't there to, to be like, yeah, Nicky's our guy. But they weren't generally. And I mean, the fact that this was happening week in, week out, and it, it took a guy like Winmar, and even, what is it, two years later, Long? It, it took, you know, it still hadn't particularly been fixed by the time that Long did it. It was only when that happened that, that the league sort of went, okay, we better, we better step into this and try and mm. change the culture. And to them, I'm dying yeah. credit, they really did. And they really have done a lot of work since to, to try to do that. And, you know, yeah. good on the league for fun. I mean, like, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the start. Were they late to the party or did it just take a while before the momentum got up where it was like, this is now can't be ignored anymore? So in the week that follows, so the Herald Sun run the story with a very different headline. They have a similar photo. There's then a media watch program on what happens with the conflicting narratives. Can you talk us through what went down there? Yeah, a lot actually. Um, <clears throat> I had a weekend off and had gone up to Yarrawonga with Richard Hines, um, another reporter, to play golf. Um, so there was the two of us and uh, Anna, who was my then wife, and the three of us were up on the Yarrawonga, basically, which I'd never really been to that part of the world before, so I was having a, a world of experiences up there, um, what those golf clubs are like and the big uh, locker rooms and all that sort of stuff, or, you know, the, the, where you eat and drink and all that sort of stuff and the poker machines. It was amazing. So I'm in the middle of all that when my sister rings me. Um, actually, it was clearly uh, mobile phone time because my sister rang me and said... Um, you've just been on Media Watch. And I was like, oh, my God, my career's over. <laughs> like, I didn't realise, what have I done? <laughs> Which is pretty much a response if you're on Media Watch, like, oh, my God, what's, it's like the police turning up at your front door. You're like, what, what crimes? The kiss of death. Yeah, totally. And she said, but don't worry, you're okay. And I was like, what, what's happened? And so then she kind of told me what had happened and uh, I did get to see it. Um, somehow I got to see the thing later on. But, yeah, this hilarious thing where what Media Watch had done had said, um, you know, Nick Place in the Sunday Age wrote yada, 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 while the Herald Sun wrote. And I think from memory it was like we won it on guts and determination was what they yeah. claimed that Winmar had said. Something we did it like with that. guts was their headline, I think. Yeah, which is just amazing. Um, and so, yeah, that was, it turns out that, you know, in footy parlance, uh, Mark Yates ran past me to get the person he was trying to get. I was just in frame as he took Doom Brennan out next to me. So basically, you know, I was lucky. I was, uh, I was kind of came out of that clean. But yeah, it was pretty amazing that Media Watch had sort of pointed out just how their Herald Sun had decided to take a take a stand or you know they'd taken a line on this i'm like well here's the photo how are we going to handle this i wonder what he said yada 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 so it was pretty embarrassing for them really i don't really like to bag other journalists i don't like to bag other media organizations again if you sit in their newsroom on the night they've probably seen the first edition of the age and seen this photo and been like holy crap what's this photo and realize that it's it's a photo that they probably need to get in on but are we going to go down this racist thing if we didn't hear it? I have some sympathy, but it would have been a would have been a tough conversation in their room. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think history can judge whether they made the right call or not on how they ran with it. Do those two kind of competing narratives ever get reconciled, or is it just again the the, the kind of the byplay of newspaper is that it's on to the next issue anyway? So once they've had their say, you've had your say, and Media Watch has their say. <laughs> Does it just become, let's move on to the next news story? 
They went out and hired Andrew Bolt. To be honest, they, I mean, you, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a fan of media organisations lining up other media organisations or journos potting other journos. I think that a lot, especially in daily papers and especially in, um, in the, you know, the hurly-burly of after a, a game and you're trying to hit deadlines and all that. I mean, when I worked at the Herald, like when I was, when I was a really young reporter on the Herald covering football, you know, we had to file the match report five minutes after the siren. So the way that we used to do that was that we would at half time write, we would ring a copy taker for starters, <laughs> this is dating myself badly, but we would ring a copy taker, normally be a woman at a, at a type, well, a computer, it was a typewriter, but then a computer. And you would actually read, you'd dictate the first half. Richmond got off to a fast start with goals to do, do, do before Collingwood pegged them back. And you would basically write the first half of the story, which was about eight or ten paragraphs at half time and hang up. And then during the third quarter, you would ring up and kind of give another sort of update, which would then be put at the top of that. So that first half would be down the bottom of the story. You would then deliver the, the, the other quarter of it. And then you would just give sort of three paragraphs at the end saying, you know, Carlton's won a thriller after coming back. Rah, rah, that would be three bars and it was in the paper. And by the time you got down to the rooms for the coach's interview, it was pretty much already being printed for the country edition. And you would then race up and give a couple of coaches quotes and that would go in the city edition and you were done. And so it was that fast. Mm. And you basically couldn't screw up. You basically, you know, had to be on the phone to a person at a typewriter or whatever. I covered the Robbie Muir going nuts against the Carlton game. In probably that was my third or fourth game as an 18 or 19 year old reporter. They sent me out to Carlton versus St Kilda because it was a nothing game. And Robbie Muir went nuts and knocked out half of Carlton. And I, I sent down the line to the copy table. St Kilda strongman Robbie Muir was up to his old tricks again at Princess Park today. Um, and the copy taker took that down as St Kilda strongman Robbie Muir was up to his dole checks at Princess Park today. And I got called in on the Monday with, what the fuck was that? And I said, I just, it was this guy, Jim O'Brien, who was a great journo. And I just said, Jim, I just didn't say it. And he went, yeah, okay. You probably did it. <laughs> and you'd be pleased to know the lawyers then got involved in that story. And by the time that it actually, um, by the time it made the paper and I got back, it actually, my, my lead story from Robbie Muir knocking out half of Carlton was, St Kilda strongman Robbie Muir appeared to have his number taken at Princess Park this afternoon. It's, it's like Chinese long, whispers. It's a long convoluted story of like basically after a match on a day when you're hitting a deadline, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of pressure and a lot of speed and a lot of stuff can fall through the cracks. Um, and then it, a lot of stuff does just kind of disappear after that. It all sort of happens and shakes down and then Monday's narrative. Mm. This isn't a time before there was talking footy and all those kind of endless recapping of the round too, you know? There wasn't a lot of that. There was really just news, news reporters covering the aftermath. Mike Sheehan mm. would have been the one that would have been all over what happened next. Yeah. yeah. And so we've mentioned Alan McAllister, the Magpies president, and his comments after the game. I'm just going to read them. Um, so he basically said that Indigenous players would be accepted by the community as long as they conduct themselves like white people uh, off the field, everyone will admire and respect them. I think when you even when you read the quote, you can get a sense that he's bumbling a little bit. But I wanted to ask you what impact that had in the, the kind of week after, and what was the week after like? Was this printed and then no one spoke about it, or was there kind of there was media watch? But what else was happening around this in that week? 
Yeah, I don't remember it forensically, but it was definitely talked about. It was definitely became a, a story of the week. And Winmar, you know, who was a Winmar wasn't exactly a media savvy guy in a lot of fronts. So I'm sure there was a media pack down at St Kilda straight away. Um, I'm sure he was probably struggling with that. Um, he took off from the club, right? Immediately, like a week later, which I sort of forgotten at the time. Like I said, I kind of had a week off, so I'd, I'd left and gone to play golf and kind of missed the next weekend. So I, in my head, I'd actually forgotten that he actually kind of walked out on the club very quickly after this all happened. Um, and, you know, I, I think he had some interesting um, advice from management about his contract and stuff, but I'm sure this was all part of it. And I'm sure... Yeah, Winmar has always been reasonably uncomfortable in front of the media pack, and I'm sure that this would have been beyond anything he'd ever experienced. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was pretty. It was definitely would have would have dominated the week. There's no doubt. Um, yeah, like I said, the other the other big story I remember from the week was Jim Steins losing his consecutive, or you know, being injured. And I mean, even now, it's it's not hard to see which was the big story coming out of those two. Someone saying screw you to the entire Collingwood mm. supporter base um, and making a stand for racism. Or an Irishman doing that. You know, it's no real comparison. I mean, Winmar at the time took an extended period of leave based on his contract, but he told Niall in 2018 that the racial abuse was, was part of the reason he stepped back. Because immediately after the game, he went to Molly Meldrum's house. And then it kind of all played out over the next kind of few weeks. And he eventually does come back and and kind of return to, to playing. So you mentioned kind of that week. Looking back at it now, like when did you start to realise that this had become a seminal moment? How, how long did it take for you I to kind of realise? Yeah, it wouldn't have been that week. But. It's, been, it's been raked over so much that like, no, you know, we didn't know that he'd gone to Molly Meldrum's house, for example. Which makes total mm. sense. It's right nearby. That was, that's a very smart place for him to go to get away and um, you know, also when you think about the emotions of the day for, for him and also for Gilbert McAdam, who was right in the thick of it as well, you know, they would have been incredibly emotional coming off the ground as well as some killed the winning. I mean, they clearly were seething and clearly to the point that Winmar made that stand, they were, you know, <laughs> they didn't just sort of go, oh, well, we got that out of the way, let's have a shower and go to the pub. I mean, it's a, it's a big moment for him and I, I would love, I'd actually love to know what was really said between Winmar and McAdam afterwards. I've sort of heard various versions and they've talked about it a bit here and there, but, you know, that must have been a pretty amazing locker room to be in afterwards. Um, and I'd love to know too whether the St Kilda Whites and Kilda players kind of got what had just happened and got, you know, the whole thing. I mean, most of the media pack, from my understanding, completely missed it because it happened sort of a long way from where they were all trying into the rooms and doing that thing I was talking about of having to get in there to meet the coaches and all that. So... No one saw it. It was only that Wayne was still on the ground and kind of shooting that he mm. got it. Um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if most of the secure players also had no idea about it, possibly until they picked up the paper the next day. So, Which is actually bang on. So Gilbert it, didn't know until... Yeah, Gilbert has said that he didn't know until he picked up the Sunday age. So it, well, it well, seems... We might, we might didn't even tell him after the game. It, 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 seems, it seems like he didn't tell anyone immediately after and so then everyone picked up what had actually kind of happened in the day the day that followed and then the weeks that followed um so when the kind of first conversation between McAdam and Winmar happened 
it's about this. It's probably the next day. But again, yeah. like being being in those rooms. I mean, the the way they sung the song after that game was was particularly raucous. Anyway, partly because of the occasion, but also because of everything that had happened. Yeah, I think it would have been though. I, I would be, you know, that, that's what's dangerous with this stuff. I think that you can rewrite history that they sang the song hard because of what had happened to Wimmer. I bet they didn't. They just sang the song hard because they had twelve consecutive losses at Collingwood and they won. And who wouldn't sing the song hard? So you mm. know. I think there's a lot of kind of revisionist history goes on at this moment. I mean, to be, to be honest, in, in answer to your question, I reckon that when I think about it, it was a big thing and the fact that Wimar then disappeared and all that, I mean, it was a story and it rolled along and it was a big yarn. But I reckon it actually was, it was like a pre-tremor to Long and that was two years later. And I think that in the wake of Long, you can look back and go, actually, there was a bit of a tremor a while ago that was a bit of a warning that this was going to happen and i would argue that it was probably more of that you know that and there might have been ones in between i'm not 100 percent sure and there's you know i can think of other incidents but i can't think of the timeline but yeah I, I would argue that it was big but it wasn't that big until long made it big because you mm. started to see a narrative you started to see that it wasn't just an event it was there's a narrative happening here yeah so the interesting thing about kind of 93 is uh, Long wins the Norm Smith at Essendon. Wanganeen, yeah. another Indigenous player, wins the Brownlow. Essendon win the flag with a kind mm. of a... They'd kind of been one of the clubs that it was early to embrace, I guess, Indigenous players. The grand final entertainment is all Indigenous. So they have Arthur, Archie Roach and Yoffi Yindi. Um, so I think that the thing that's in, and we spoke a little bit earlier about Sheedy, so you get this feeling that the game is becoming more open to Indigenous players and Indigenous culture. And so you mentioned Long and Anzac Day in 95, where he's racially abused by Damien Monkhorst. So this, that's kind of the, I guess, the next seminal moment after Winmar. And I guess what you've kind of just said is that they kind of played off each other. Like the, the one wasn't possible without the other, potentially. Yeah, but it's also, you know, that's where, you, as you said at the start, the Redfern thing probably kicks in as well. Mm. I'd be interested to know whether the Redfern speech led to we should have, and Yoffi Yindi being on the rise and being a popular band and all that, I mean, whether that was actually what made them think, oh, that's a good thing to put on at the grand final. But that's a decision. Is that off the back of Winmar that they think let's actually show some support? I mean, it is all a slow-brewing kind of thing that is turning into something, but at the time, all those various parts might not fit together quite as neatly. I certainly wasn't yeah. at the 93 grand final thinking this is all because of Nicky Wimar lifting his jumper that this has all happened. You know, mm. that that didn't sort of occur to me on the day. Um, now I can look back at it and kind of go, oh, yeah, I guess there's probably through lines if you look for them. But, you know, um, I mean, Wanganeen's an interesting one because that technically that is an unrelated event. Right? That's a weird comet flying through the solar system that an Indigenous guy wins the brown load. If you believe that the Brownlow is an impartial and uh, and random thing chosen by umpires on the day and locked away and never looked at, then there's no way to rig that and it just happened that an Indigenous player won and that's a neat coincidence that happened on the year. Um, so, you know, it's it's an interesting, it's a really interesting topic to try and work out what is, what is related, what isn't related. So when you kind of sit back and think about this now, how do you kind of reflect on being involved in a moment that was in... I know when the, the Australian Dream came out last year, you kind of got a lot of messages because they clipped your, your article. So how do you kind of reflect on this now? 
um, you know, it's it's a it's a strange one for me because I didn't really do a lot. I think probably, I think Wayne credits me more with fighting for the story to be on the front page. That probably was my, that's probably the thing that was the biggest thing that I did on the day. The actual writing of the story was just doing what I do. I mean, any other week you can pull out that story and it's like, you know, someone's kicked seven goals and this happened and that happened. Um, clearly my lead was Nikki Wimmer has done this at Collingwood. And, but I was really just working as a news journal to write that. It wasn't some genius on my part or some vision. It was just like me writing the story of the day. Um, but, you know, I guess I would look at that I've, I think I had a pretty journeyman career as a journalist. I had a few wins. I had a few losses. I did some good stuff. But I'm not remarkable compared to some of the people who've covered footy over the years. I don't consider myself as having had a remarkable career by any by any means. So I'm incredibly lucky that I'm connected to such a significant moment in time. Um, you know, ultimately, yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to look back at my career and there's that and there's a couple of other things that I think I'm really proud of either achieving that or of being part of that. And it's definitely one of those. Like I said, I'm, I'm very much a bit player, even in that incident, which is where it's a bit embarrassing because, yeah, here's my byline, I'm a really strange room. And, you know, I didn't even leave the office. I was sitting there probably eating biscuits and uh, drinking coffee. Doing all the so I feel like a bit of a fraud of uh, having turned up in a documentary 30 years later. But, um, I, you know, I'm really glad. If I'm going to be remembered for something, well, then, hell, that's a good one to be remembered for. And I'm a passionate, passionate advocate for getting rid of racism and any other isms that are flying around. Um, I think that you can be a brave, strong courageous sportsmen without um, sledging people for their race or their sexuality or any other thing that you think might be a weak link. I find that pretty weak. Um, I've got into trouble playing ice hockey and other sports for having taken people up on that issue. Um, it is something I'm very passionate about. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice that if I'm going to be, my byline's going to be on a story that's remembered, that's a good one to be on. Smothered beautifully there by Lowe. Here's a chance for McKenna again on the right foot. He hooks it back. This is floating towards the goal. Will it clear the line? I think it's a goal. First blood to the so we're going to roll and have a little chat about the game itself because it is actually a pretty special game of football in its own right. So you've got to, you're going to give us the one minute whirlwind wrap. It was a rematch that fans and players alike have circled in their diaries and seen by the panicked and antagonistic Victoria Park crowd that witnessed St Kilda break its venue hoodoo. Despite missing star players, this match for the first three quarters lived up to its funnels-like atmosphere, filling with a steady flow of highlight reel moments and high scoring. St Kilda entered the funnel break with a 22-point buffer and despite a late match stutter, very stereotypical of St Kilda, they managed to maintain that lead and, and their win streak over Collingwood. Nicky Wimmar will forever be remembered for this game, but it was future cult hero Gilbert McAdam who was judged best on ground for his 21 disposal and five goal performance. So I guess a question for you, Nicky, you obviously listened to this the radio at the time. Have you ever seen a full replay of the actual game? No, I haven't. I probably saw highlights and, you know, would have watched it on whatever the replay shows were at the time, but I don't think I've seen the whole game. So from your radio listening in the Age newsroom, do you have a moment that stood out from, from the match? Well, that's a tough question from 30 years later. Um, and without notice. <laughs> I remember. I, 
I certainly, I think I probably remember McAdam bobbing up in whatever capacity that was. You know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys saw McAdam. You're probably too young to remember McAdam in action, but he was kind of, Morris Rioli was my hero um, as a kid. Like he was, Morris Rioli had a way of playing um, that was, sort of had time and he just, the way that he moved and he had that low centre of gravity that the really great players have. And I, I vividly remember Morris Rioli and the way he moved. And Gilbert McAdam had a very idiosyncratic way of moving as well. He kind of bobbed and he sort of went up and down as he darted and he had this way of kind of moving. And I'd always liked McAdam. And so, you know, I think probably my thing was hearing it and hearing that he kicked five and knowing that actually St Kilda had got out to enough that, yeah, with their stutter and their classic St Kilda, are they going to screw this up? Didn't screw it up and got over the line, which was significant. But St Kilda actually had the had the spine. That's always a big thing in any team of can they actually hold their nerve? Um, so good on them for doing it. That The football writer in me would have totally taken notice of that, that actually St Kilda have hung on and have actually managed to to stay firm but also just yeah McAdam I, I sort of remember too I, I might be wrong because it's a long time ago but I sort of remember that his goals weren't all early I sort of remember there was at least one that was quite late that was a pretty significant one to give them the buffer and I reckon that's what would have stood out for me like holy crap McAdam's done it that's cool that's very cool he had a lot of um a lot of criticism from Saints fans being just like a support player he was like their version of like Josh Jenkins uh, being oh. playing second fiddle to like Tex Walker or something, and so with Plugger out for that game, he stood up, kicked five, basically won the game single-handedly for for most of that game. So he had had his had his moment of being like, actually, I can be your your main forward if I if I need to be. It's a harsh knock, that isn't it? Like any um, I think he he definitely was. I don't think it's a knock on McCann to say he wasn't a turn up every single game and brain and player. And some players are some mercurial kind of players do come and go. And you know we see it now. You see players who finally get kind of let go because they do it occasionally, but occasionally isn't enough. And McCann was better than that. He did it more than occasionally. As in, I think he totally held his place in the team and did good things regularly. But yeah, it was a bit out of the box for him to to stand up like that. Um, but every every team has had those, you know. Mm. I think, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's yeah. I, I liked him. I thought he was good. And I think he did have a good career. And I think, again, history has judged him well. There's probably a few players who were big, big players in their teams who actually now have been completely forgotten. Whereas I think McAdam actually is now remembered like, actually, you know what? That guy was pretty good now we think about it. Mm. Mickey, Mickey O'Loughlin was another one like that, I reckon. He... Just over the journey, you went, holy crap, that guy's good. You know, sort of snuck up on you in a way. Haunted my childhood, did Michael O'Loughlin. So, Gordo, we watched the tape. Did you have a, uh, a Gilbert McAdam moment that you particularly thought stood out? Uh, my favourite, I think, it was the end of the third quarter. He kind of run down tackle in the middle of the field, scoop up one hand, very Mickey O'Loughlin-like, and then goes charging towards the 50. And all you hear is a commentator saying... Bounce the ball, keep running, and instead he just bombs it from 60 out and kicks it straight through. And as the ball is in mid mid flight, the commentators are like, "Why has he done that? He doesn't have the distance." And then someone, I think it's uh, Drew Morford over the top, he just goes, "He has the distance. It's through." So kind of go in with a 20 point lead. And so it was just hilarious that even like the criticism was continuous, even as he was kicking his fourth goal for the game. 
people didn't still quite believe in him. But it was that was a pretty good moment, I think. The other one that I loved was the there's a goal he kicked in the first quarter, which like when you talk about him bobbing, it's such a good description because he gets it inside 50 and kind of darts onto his left and then turns back onto his right, takes like four steps and then kind of kicks this drop punt across his body from like 45 metres out. And it's just like he's, he's going so far away from the goals that the angle his leg actually hit, kicks, kicks the ball at seems kind of almost improbable given the distance. And then it kind of just goes through like post high and you're just like, what? How did he do that? Like, yeah. he, he um, was unbelievable and he didn't kick all his goals early. I think they were fairly staggered throughout the throughout the day. Man, isn't that why we love footy though? Isn't that moment when someone does something like that and you just go, how did he do that? I mean, we're lucky, right? If you're a Richmond supporter now, you've got Dusty doing it crazily often of just how did he do that? That's ridiculous. And I covered a lot of Gary Ablett Senior um, and, you know, was lucky enough to let Ablett Senior just do that kind of stuff just over and over again. So cool. So those moments are just fantastic. So I, that's why I adore about Aussie rules. It's funny, a lot of the sports I covered, I really can't watch much anymore, like tennis. I really, I covered a lot of tennis and covered Wimbledon, the French Open and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I really don't watch much tennis anymore. I love watching Federer. I, I loved watching Federer when he was in his prime. Um, but I really have trouble sitting through a full match of tennis, whereas AFL, I'm still right there. No problem. I could be watching, just watching for the, the way players move, the way they do things the way they, you know. Again, I can remember this stuff clearly. I remember being at the Western Oval and watching Gary Hocking basically pick up a ball, somehow look over both shoulders on each side at once, which I don't quite know how he did it, glancing over both shoulders, seeing two Footscray players coming straight at him, somehow pausing and then going so they actually collided. <laughs> all, all in like a fraction of a second or probably a second at most and just thinking that's just awesome and just those sorts of things I just adore you know and I, Shane Edwards is my one of my favorite players now because he does that kind of stuff and yeah I, I'm a fan I'm a fan of the mercurial and I'm a fan of AFL and you know Aussie rules because it salutes the mercurial and there's always going to be an element of like if you can do that stuff, go do it, which I love. It's not regimented at all. It's cool. Mm. It's very cool. So Winmar kicks the sealer from 60. So it's a, it's a pretty good moment. But what? Goes for the hand pass. Players swoop in on it. Oh, here's Winmar from 60 metres. Nicky Winmar kicks. Oh, I think he's goal. The Saints are home. That's cool, isn't it? I mean, imagine what the ground would be like. It, you know, again, we're not talking about pristine, crafted grounds, aerated, well drained, you know that that to do that in the middle of Victoria Park in the in the early nineties, you know the skill of picking up a wet ball and just being able to do that is unbelievable. So there's a couple of other tip bits. Um, was there anything that stood out to you when you watched this back? Obviously that these two teams hated each other, but also how normal it was, because I think Frawley gets reported in this game for what is like mild striking or whatever they call it back in the early 90s but he literally just elbows someone in their face like stuff and that you michael, would like it's michael christian who, yeah. who runs the mrp <laughs> and, and he would have run the charts and been like oh i'm a bit confused about this he has hit me directly in the head with the point of his elbow that's probably just medium contact but the commentators are just saying why is he taking so long to get up after he gets hit and like today twitter would melt down 
We'd spend three days talking about it on Talking Footy and Footy Classified and 360. Robbo and Joe would have a, have a fight about it. It'd be on SEN. But no, it's, it lasts all of like seven and a half seconds. And then they go back, kick the goal, and everyone's forgotten about the fact that Danny Froling has almost killed a person on a football field. It's mental. But this isn't, but this isn't too far away from that kid being sent down to play on Tony Lockett who said, you can do anything to me but pull my jumper, kid. And the kid pulled his jumper and he almost strangled him and yeah. you know, the kid almost passed out. I mean, you know, and that wasn't even regarded as kind of anything. completely yeah. out of order that this guy literally thought he was going to die because he had Lockett's arm and elbows like he couldn't breathe. Um, you know, it's, it's a crazy time. You do, you forget that this is in my reported lifetime. It's changed that much. It's incredible. Well, <laughs> I don't think you've heard this one, Gordo, but my old man played school footy and played on Tony Lockett. And we we'll actually have to, now I'm, we actually need to get him on to tell this story because he was 16 and Lockett was 14. And Lockett just spent the entire game, if you back into that hole, I'm going to fucking kill you all day as a 14-year-old playing like local footy in Frankston. And he kicked like eight on my old man in the first quarter and then dad belted him, which he says he's not proud of, but I think he actually is. And then Lockett spent two quarters basically trying to kill my old man and me by, you know, by the way that those things work. And then he finally got back to playing footy and kicked like six in the last quarter. It's, yeah, it is a proper telling. So in that old school football style, quite a good tactic by your dad. Put him off for half the game. Good work. Like, literally. But, I mean, they all used to do, not punching blokes in the guts, but, like, Ablett, if you stood in the hole in front of him, he would just run through. Like, the 89 grand final, it's Ablett that essentially punches Dipper Domenico's lump. Like, mm. he just flans him. And you look at the hit and you're like, if that happened today, it's weeks and the bloke is probably never getting up. Like, oh. People, people forget how tough Ablett Senior was. Ablett's... Ablett Senior's back was unbelievable. It was like this just side of beef. He was incredible. I can remember, watch, I can remember once watching him running along the boundary. It might have even been in the grand final against um, West Coast. I can't remember. It was in a final. And I can remember 92? watching Ablett Senior running along the boundary, kind of paddling the ball, trying to, you know, when you're paddling the ball, waiting for it to bounce up so you can actually pick it up. Like pretty much at, at pace, doing that. And I think it was Don Pike from memory who saw him and his eyes lit up. This is early in the game. It's like Ablett, head over the ball, completely focused on trying to pick up the ball, vulnerable. Early in a big final, holy crap, I can take him out and this increases our odds dramatically. Basically, cocks the arm and just comes from a million miles away like a steam train. And I can clearly remember Ablett just looking up at the last second and very deliberately just cocking his shoulder up like a dance move just shoulder down shoulder up Pike hit the shoulder and was basically KO'd just like he'd run into a wall just bang and, and I just can remember thinking you know you forget that Abbott Senior was just so so tough as well as everything else he was he was he was just a, a tree yeah so speaking of tough my unsung hero from this game was Nathan Burke in the last quarter in a skull cap that looked like it had absolutely no padding in it whatsoever. And he literally just puts his head in every hole that it needs to go in. And then he performs the rundown tackle that allows Winmar to have the, the kind of moment where he runs into 60 and kicks the winning goal. And I'm kind of, because th- I'm like too young. I remember like the very end of Nathan Burke. 
So mm. like 2003 kind of time. But like seeing him in 93 as like a relatively young player, mm. um, watching this back was pretty, was pretty interesting. Oh, absolute, absolute warrior. I love Nathan Burke. And, you know, how did St Kilda not win a flag? My God, the players they had. I mean, Nathan Burke didn't get the credit he deserved because they had Robert Harvey and they had these other guys. And, you know, it's, Burke was just amazing. Like, so tough, so brave, just so... Just that guy that any team wants to have who just does... You're right, just totally gets into that spot and then actually could use the ball and everything as well. Nathan Burke mm. was fantastic. But just, you know, because they had Winmo, because they had, you know, Harvey, because they had Lockett, because they had Stewie Lowe. Was he playing then? I guess he would have mm-hmm. been around then. Yeah. yeah, Stewie Lowe played, yeah. You know, they just had so many good players. Like, how, how did they not get there? It's amazing. God, they had a team. The other one that I couldn't get my head around. So, like, Spider Everett kicks this goal. I think it's in the first quarter on his left foot from like 40 metres out on the boundary line around his body. And I looked at it and I'm just like, how have you done that at your height? And then I just spent a bit longer looking at Spider Everett and it's pre-tattoo Spider Everett. So it's like seeing Dusty pre-tattoo. <laughs> and I showed, I showed my partner and she kind of just looked at me and just didn't really get it, which is, was disappointing. But like pre-tattoo Spider Everett was an absolute highlight from this as well. Because I just re- like, remember like 2000 Spider Everett. like the toughest guy you could go near, tattoos everywhere. Yeah. So that was weird. He had it just a baby face. It would actually be a fantastic TV series if you could do it of like when they were young. So, you know, because it's a funny, it's a bit like we're talking about with history and just how you sort of write history backwards. And, you know, I don't know, kind of like James Hurd. You kind of look at James Hurd and go, wow, what a career. And by the time he finished, his career was unbelievable. And, you know, there's so many players like that. But... I don't know, just that thing of actually going here they are as a first or second year player and no one knows yet that they're going to be unbelievable. Um, I find it really interesting, that stuff. You know, you're right, Spider Everett isn't Spider Everett at that point. He's just some kid trying to get a game and, you know, you don't know who he's going to be. It's really, I love that stuff. Mm. And it's the other thing that's an interesting kind of undernote to this game is it's probably the start of the Saints realising they can win without Lockett. Because Lockett's obviously suspended and then a couple of years later is nearly traded to Richmond in what would have probably been the best day of my life because I would have been born. Um, but then ends up going to Sydney and then they go on to make the 97 grand final. I don't know if you kind of remember anything about their kind of progression as a side from here into 97, kind of having worked and covered it. Uh, Lockett, I mean, it's that funny thing, isn't it? Sometimes you have a player who it all lines up that you've got that player, it should that should be what wins you a flag. But actually, it's a strange thing that you can become too reliant on them and actually having a diverse forward line. I think that was kind of maybe around the time you discovered that having a diverse forward line might actually be more potent than having one guy you just kick it to every single time, even if he's Tony Lockett, who I fully respect as, you know, if you're going to have someone to kick it to, that's not a bad option. Um, I mean, you know, Hawthorne invented Hudson's Paddock, you know, as, you know, sort of just everyone else clear out they didn't have 50 then, but basically clear out the 50 and literally leave Peter Hudson one-on-one with his opponent because he'll probably win it. You know, I mean, that, you know, it's it's a tactic, but actually I think it's now kind of been, certainly in modern football, it's been proven that you, you need to have more than a one-trick pony in your forward line. It just doesn't work enough. 
And yeah, it's an, Lockett is probably a prototype of that, of like, made sense. Because they didn't only have Lockett either. And they did have Stewie Lowe. And they did have a guy like Spider Everett. They did have a second forward, a second marking option. And Stewie Lowe was a decent second option. He, that guy was a beast and could take a grab and did a lot of good things. So it's funny. Again, it's funny it didn't work. Um, yeah, it's strange. You would think that we'd lock it in the forward line and that midfield and Danny Frawley down the back and a couple of other pieces. You'd, you'd think that looks like a car that would go a long way, you know. So it's funny that it didn't. And it's funny that actually losing Lockett did lead to other things. It's, yeah, again, William Goldman wrote about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. You know, if everyone knew what made a hit movie, every movie would be a hit movie. Um, and I think that this is football's equivalent of that. You know, we can all wax theories as long as we like, but nobody knows anything or else we'd all win the flag every year. You know, I'm sure there's people still scratching their head. How do we not win a flag with Tony Lockett standing at full forward and Stewie Lowett, ten and a half forward and Robert Harvey and Nathan Burke delivering it to him and Nicky Wimar doing magic on the sides and a decent defence? How do we not win a flag? It's a fair question. I'd be asking that if I was a poor to kill the supporter. So... Uh, St Kilda have not returned to Victoria Park since that game in 1993. To highlight the unlikelihood of what they managed to achieve on the field that day, their win percentage overall at the ground was 9.3%, which remains the worst record of any ground, uh, with any side at any ground ever in the history of league football. Um, Winmar's brief hiatus hurts the Saints um, they lose to Carlton, then they have the bye. They lose to Richmond in Richo's debut and their season slowly slips away. They don't win again until round 11 and finish 10-10 and outside the top six. Collingwood also squander their strong start to the season, missing the six and finishing the season 11-9. and Winmar's uh, career at the Saints continues until 1998. Uh, he's suspended in that season for fighting in much of a game against Carlton and then is eventually delisted by the club at the end of the 98 season. He's redrafted by the Doggies in 1999 and that turns out to be his final season in the league. Thanks very much for tuning in this week. We'll be back again in a week's time for round five. In the meantime, if you're looking for some quiet reading, you can pop to my new website. This is an enormous plug and I am very sorry. It is jackbannister.com with a single N. You can read the Footy People series I'm writing from lockdown. The first profile on the site is of America's greatest Aussie rules aficionado, Brian Barish. You can also support that series of content and this podcast via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash jackbannister. We will see you again next week.